morning services, we're talking about divine guidance. And we've uh, looked at a couple of text scriptures, used a couple of text scriptures to, as a foundation for our discussion. Uh, one is in Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 27. It says, the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly. We've also looked at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23, which tells us the makeup of man. It identifies how God made us in his own image. Paul said, I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when Proverbs twenty twenty seven says the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, that's talking about our spirits. It's referring to our spirits being the means or the method or the way that God enlightens us. That's what it means for the spirit of man to be the candle or the light or the lamp of the Lord. He enlightens us by our spirits. Now in Romans chapter 8, there are two verses, verses 14 and 14. Verse 16, that are really important in this, uh, uh, concerning this subject. Romans eight fourteen says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, <clears throat> they are the sons of God. Then he tells us in verse 16 how that happens. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. Folks, there's nothing more important in life to know that you, than to know that you are a child of God. Now, I don't mean by that just to know that we're saved. Every Christian knows they're saved, whether they on, meditate on it or not. But when I say it's important for us to know that we're children of God, what I really mean by that is there's nothing more important than for us to know who we are in Christ, what he's done for us, what salvation really means. For too much of the church world, it seems to me, salvation just means we've got a place to go after we die. That's a poor description of eternal life. Amen? Eternal life is something we have now. It's not something we get when we die. It's something that we have now that provides us benefits here on the earth. Amen? Now, Paul identified the difference in uh, uh, the conflict that he had between his spirit and his soul. We looked at some uh, length in Romans chapter 7 about um, Paul's description of the conflict that he experienced. And it's the same conflict that we all experience. He talked about wanting to do right from this heart, the part of him that was born again, the spirit of man, what Peter called the hidden man of the heart in 1 Peter 3, 4. He said this hidden man of the heart, Paul called him the inward man, this inward man always wants to do right because it's what's born again. It's what's saved. You remember that Paul was the one that told us in 2 Corinthians five seventeen. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Other translations say a new creation. One translation says a new species of being. I like that. A new species of being. Old things are passed away and all things become new. Well, what old things pass away and what all things become new? Well, we know things of the flesh don't pass away. Our flesh doesn't change at the new birth. If we were bald when we got saved, it doesn't put hair on our head. It doesn't change our eye color. And it doesn't change things of the mind, the things that we had an aptitude for before we got saved. We still have the same aptitude toward after. Sometimes that aptitude's even enhanced. So what all things become new, what old things pass away and all things become new has to be spiritual things. It's our spirit that's born again. Now, folks, the Bible is very, very specific 
in the way that it identifies what happens to us at the new birth. It says God takes out the old heart or the old spirit. In the Bible, most of the time when the word heart is used, it's talking about the spirit, the innermost part of our being. The real man on the inside. And when we're born again, not only are we presented with a new spirit, but then God puts his spirit on the inside of us. There's no such thing, therefore, as spiritual healing. What would be in your spirit or my spirit that would need to be healed? God doesn't refurbish it. God doesn't dress it up. He takes the old spirit out of us and puts a new spirit within us. Now, that happens faster than you can blink your eye. How does that work? I have no idea. I just know that the Bible says that's the way it is. So the idea of spiritual healing is a misnomer. It's an an unscriptural term. There are things about our soul, however, that still need to be conformed to the image of Christ. James wrote to people that were born again spirit-filled that we should, James 121, that we should receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save our souls. Now he's talking to people that have been born again. He's talking to people that have been filled with the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. And yet he says their souls are not saved. This is referring to the same thing that Paul talked about in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where he said, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove or experience what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So the mind of man, or the soul of man, which is made up of our minds, our will, and our emotions. Those things have to be brought in line and taught according to the word of God so that we can think God's thoughts and understand who we are and what has been bestowed upon us because we were brought into the family of God. Now, as I said, Paul talked about his uh, conflict. He said, the man on the inside always wants to do right. He said, but I see another outward man, another desire, working through my flesh. And he said, sometimes his flesh won. He said, the things that I want to do from the inside, I don't always wind up doing. And the things that I wind up doing in my life, through my body, those are things that I resent from the inside. Now, he talked about the same thing to the Galatians. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16, it says, walk therefore in the spirit and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And then he makes another statement. He says, for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Now, if you look at that and read that in the King James, it capitalizes the word spirit, which is an indication that the translators thought that he was talking about the Holy Spirit. But folks, that can't be. The Holy Spirit doesn't have any trouble with flesh. He doesn't have flesh. He's talking about the reborn spirit, recreated, born again spirit of man. In conflict, the same conflict that he talked about to the Romans. The same conflict between the flesh and the spirit on the inside of us. Now Paul goes on to say at the end of Romans chapter 7, concerning this fight, concerning this conflict, he realizes that it's going to take something outside of himself to win the battle. So he asks the question, who will deliver me from the body of this death? He's talking about who's going to deliver us. From this flesh that still has desires according to the spiritual death that came upon us when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. Who's going to deliver us? And he says, thank God that Jesus Christ our Lord does. He talks about being delivered 
from the wrongdoing in our flesh. Now, I think a lot of times we look at that and we think, well, that may, must mean, therefore, that we can live in such a way that we never do wrong. Well, that would certainly be possible if we grew and, and matured in God to that point. But really what the point that Paul is trying to make is that he's delivered us because God knows what experience our flesh has. He knows what pull the flesh or the body has on the spirit. God's well acquainted with this conflict between spirit, the spirit man and the out, outward man, the body. He's well acquainted with that. And it's telling us that God has delivered us from any sense of guilt and shame when we're unable to control our bodies through our spirit. And that's why he talks about in Romans chapter 8 about being led of the spirit. Now we're right here in Romans chapter 8. Turn with me to Romans chapter 9. Let me show you something. Look at verse 1. Paul said, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. Now he just said in chapter 8 that for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. That's verse 14. And then in Romans chapter 8, verse 16, he says the Spirit bears witness with our spirits that we are the sons of God. Well, here in Romans chapter 9, verse 1, where Paul talks about his conscience, he said, my conscience is also bearing me witness. That definitely means then by definition that this conscience has to be a part of your spirit. If God only bears witness with your spirit, and that's how it works. Nowhere does it say God bears witness with your body. Nowhere does it say God bears witness with your mind. That means he's not going to lead us through our human reasoning alone. That means he's not going to lead us through the circumstances of life. He's not out there opening doors or fulfilling people's fleece that they put out for guidance. See, a lot of times people pray, now, God, if you want me to do such and such, you open this door. Or if you don't want me to do such and such, you close that door. Well, they're talking about the realm where Satan has influence. The devil opens and shuts doors himself. And so if you ever prayed that way, that God would lead you or show you what to do through physical circumstance or natural circumstances, you'd never know for sure it was God. But when we trust and develop in the understanding that it's through our spirit that he guides us, then it starts making sense. Here he says, I lie not in Christ Jesus, my conscience also bearing me witness. Now the thing he's talking about that he continues in the next several verses, we won't take time to read it, but he winds up talking about how he'd be willing to give his own salvation for the Jews to be saved. He talks about the love that he has for his fellow countrymen, for other Jews. And he laments the fact that so many of them are blind to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. And so he's saying, my conscience is bearing me witness that an act of love or walking in love should extend to such a point that I'd be willing to give up my own salvation so that the Jews could be saved. Well, that's admirable. Unfortunately, it's not up to Paul to, to make it work that way. But you can see that he's talking about his conscience as leading him to walk in love. Now turn with me to, to uh, John chapter 8. I want you to see the conscience in action here. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 3, it says, And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, 
this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now, folks, something about this, this story just blows my mind. Who in the Jewish leadership is going around checking (laughs) in order to catch somebody in the very act? I mean, they had a ready-made mob for this woman. So they said this woman was said unto Jesus, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him that they might have something to accuse him of. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted him up himself and said unto them, lifted himself up from writing on the ground with his finger, and said unto them, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. In other words, whichever one of you is, is uh, innocent of all sin, you take the first throw. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, notice verse 9, being convicted by their own conscience, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest and even the last, and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. A couple of things that we need to identify in this story is that the only thing that would have made their conscience convict them has to relate to what Jesus said. And what he said was, he that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. So Jesus has to be writing the names of sins on the ground. That's the only thing that would bring their conscience into play. Now, folks, they were ready to kill this woman. They showed up just a couple of verses before, talking about how she was taken in adultery in the very act. We've got the law of Moses. We know what Moses said about this. We're ready to go. And what Jesus did changed everything about their opinion, changed everything about their willingness to pass judgment on this woman, changed everything about the situation. Save the woman's life. Well, the only thing that could have done that is, 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 is as sometimes when you can't say it, you just got to stop. The only thing that would change their opinion would be if Jesus was writing sins on the ground that he knew they were guilty of. Why else would he then say, whichever one of you is without sin? Now, when he says that, he's standing right over the names of sins that he knows they're guilty of. Now, whether he had a a revelation from God to know what specific sins these individuals were guilty of, or if he's just writing the names of sin, knowing that everybody's guilty of sin, there's no way for us to identify that. But the only thing that would bring their conscience into play is if Jesus was writing the names of sin, sins that he knew they were guilty of. Now, Paul said, my conscience bears witness with me in the Holy Ghost which means the conscience has to be a part of your spirit. What then is the conscience? The conscience is the voice of your own spirit. See, the body has a voice. They're called feelings. Your mind or your soul has a voice. It's called reason. And your spirit has a voice too, and it's called conscience. Notice they were convicted by their conscience, and they went out from the oldest to the youngest. Now, that's not meant as a sign of respect. It's meant to explain to us, to define for us. 
that the older ones were convicted by their consciences before the younger ones were. Judgment is always a great characteristic of youth. But you live a little longer and you start having a little bit more mercy on people. And that seems to be the way that this went too. Well, you remember the end of the story. Jesus didn't condemn her. He just told her to go and sin no more. Now, this is how the conscience works. The conscience is that voice on the inside of you. It's a part of your spirit. It's that voice on the inside of you that tells you what you ought to do. You remember the movie, Disney movie Pinocchio with Jiminy Cricket standing on his shoulder. Well, thank God your conscience is not a cricket. But your conscience is always there to show you what you ought to do. And in my experience, I trust that yours is the same. In my experience, I very rarely hear from my conscience unless I have done wrong. It's only wrongdoing that really brings brings to bear your conscience in in words spoken to you. Now, in in, uh, Acts chapter 23, verse 1, Paul is brought before the... uh, Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, and he made this, this statement. He said, men and brethren, I have, well, let me read, rather than just refer to it. Paul, earnestly beholding the council, said, men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God unto this day. Now, that seems like a pretty innocuous statement to me, but it carried a lot more meaning that we would give it credit for. And the high priest Ananias commanded them that stood by Paul to smite him or strike him on the mouth. Now, what would bring that kind of reaction from the Jewish leaders? Paul doesn't know who the high priest is at that particular time. They revolved and rotated uh, in and out of the high priest's office every couple of years. So the one that uh, Paul is talking to here is not the one that was high priest when Jesus was crucified. That was Caiaphas. But among the same families of priests this high priest job would would uh, go from one to the other and so when paul is stripped is struck or smitten by the guy standing by he enters back he comes back again to the uh, the high priest not knowing it was him and saying what are you operating outside the law to have be struck for and then they said this is the high priest and paul said okay well i didn't know high priest can do whatever he wants to i guess But why would the high priest react in such a way? Because they knew that man could not have a clear conscience before God. Prior to salvation, which they weren't interested in, there was no way that man could have a clear conscience before God. Now look at what Paul says in Acts chapter 24, verse 16. Just go over a page and see something else that he said. Verse 16 Paul said, and herein do I exercise myself. In other words, he's saying this is the, uh, the boundaries or the direction that I have in life. Herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. Paul lived by his conscience. He lived by his conscience. Now look with me over to Hebrews chapter 9. I want to get some of these verses of scripture out here as a, a foundation And then talk about it a little bit further. Hebrews 9.13. Paul is telling about and explaining the the sacrifice of Jesus. 
the shedding of Jesus' blood and the value that it brings to us. And since he's writing to the Hebrews, he knows this is going to get back to the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. He's identifying certain things that are a part of the, the ritual law of Moses, part of the high priesthood duties, and explaining to us. Verse 13, Hebrews 9, he said, For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh, how much more? Anytime you see this phrase, how much more in the New Testament, it means it's so far beyond what it's being compared to, it really isn't a fair comparison. So he said if the flesh was purified by the Old Testament ritual and sprinkling ashes and so forth, shedding of blood, how much more shall the blood of Jesus or Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? See, Paul is identifying that the fact that our consciences were purged or cleaned, cleansed by the blood of Jesus. He's saying, therefore, that for the believer, the conscience is a safe guide. It's a safe guide. Now, back to what we talked about a few minutes ago in Romans chapter 7 and Galatians chapter 5, where Paul talks about the conflict between the spirit and the flesh. Every one of us experienced that conflict. Sometimes we win, sometimes we lose. Talking about from a spiritual standpoint. How would Paul have recognized the conflict itself if it wasn't for his conscience? See, folks, if it wasn't for his, his conscience and if it wasn't for our consciences, we wouldn't be convicted in any way whatsoever. There'd be no bearing witness with our spirit of wrongdoing. There would be no conflict because from the inside we'd never be upset by what our bodies did. There'd be no sense of right and wrong whatsoever on the inside of us. <clears throat> but that sense of right and wrong, that conscience, is what Paul said in Romans chapter 2 was the thing that caused people that had never even heard of Jesus and being saved through the shedding of his blood. He said that conscience, that knowing between right and wrong that's on the inside of every person, that's what they'd be judged by even if they hadn't heard about Jesus. So when we're born again, when we're made a new creature in Christ Jesus, our spirits are made new because our consciences are a part of our spirit, not a part of our mind. It's not a part of our soul. It's not a part of our intellect, but it's a part of our spirit. He said our spirits become a safe guide for us. Our conscience will also bear witness with our spirits. Now, turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I want to read some scriptures here that Paul elaborates a little bit more about the conscience. I'm going to start in verse 1 and get some context here for you so we can understand what the Bible is instructing us regarding our conscience. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Now, as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but charity or love edifies. And if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth, not, he knoweth nothing yet, as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. 
As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things which are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other God but one. Now, he's talking about what was a a common practice, certainly in the city of Corinth, but in every other major city too. And that is, in the Roman Empire, in the days that Paul lived, there were so many gods. I mean, there were gods for everything. And people didn't worship just one god. They might have favored one over another. But they worshiped and offered sacrifices unto all kinds of gods and all kinds of idols. There's a place in uh, Caesarea Philippi where the ruins are left from a, um, well, it looks like an outdoor strip mall. Of course, it was carved into the side of a mountain. But there were little stations where you could serve or offer an idol unto this god and then 10 feet away you could offer an idol to another god it was kind of like kiosks at the mall where you could it's a one-stop shop for sacrifice you could offer sacrifices to everything every other kind of god there was now there's certain ones that the romans favored depending on who the caesar was and and what his particular religious practices were and so there were greater gods and lesser gods or greater idols and lesser idols but of, of all these things that were sacrificed, of all these foods, these meats and such that were sacrificed, it would have been a huge waste of resources that they really didn't have for these sacrifices to be made unto an idol and then just thrown away. So what they'd do is they'd take these sacrifices, these meats that were offered in sacrifice to these idols and take them to the butcher's market. And the butcher's market, and that's what the, literally the word used here that Paul's going to refer to in a minute, literally what it means. At the butcher's market, he'd resell this meat. He'd buy it at a discount from the idols, um, caretakers, I don't know. And then they'd resell it to the people. Well, for the Christians, that created, or at least for some Christians, that created a real dilemma. Because to think that they were eating meat that had been offered to a sacrifice, they're thinking that was a sin. And so Paul starts laying the foundation for what they should do and how they should operate. Now, folks, here's a point that I want to make to you. Offering meats or eating meats offered to idols, I've never had that as an issue. Have you? Well, then what's the point for the Holy Ghost saving this letter for us? I think the point is very simply this. There are things that the Bible tells us, principles that the Bible relays to us that should affect our interaction with other Christians and with the world. In other words, Christianity is not just a do-as-you-please type thing. Now, I know a lot of people don't want to hear that. I know a lot of people want to rely on certain church doctrines like grace, for example, so that they can feel free to do whatever they want to without consequence and without thinking that God cares one way or the other. But if the Holy Ghost inspired Paul to write these things, God does care. Thank you for your enthusiastic response. (laughs) So Paul says, let me start again in verse 4. As concerning therefore the eating of those things that were offered in sacrifice unto idols. We know that an idol is nothing. It's nothing in the world. And that there is none other God but one. For though there be that are called gods. For though there be many that are called gods. Whether in heaven or in earth. 
as there be gods many and lords many. But to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we are in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. One of the things that, uh, that's hard for us to understand is that in the Roman era, there were so many gods that people sacrificed to, offered sacrifices unto, and, and worshipped, and so forth, burned incense for, and all this other kind of stuff. When the Christians, when people got saved and worshipped only God, the one true God, the Romans accused us, accused the church of being atheists because we only had one God. Because they had many, hundreds sometimes, at different points in, in history. So the church was considered to be atheists, ungodly, because they worshiped only God. And that's where a lot of the persecution came from, from the people himself, not necessarily the Roman leaders of the government, but from the people in the cities. Because worshiping only the one God says that our God is the one true God. He's the most powerful God. And none of the ones that you worship make any difference whatsoever. Well, you could well see that people recognize that as being put down. As being judged. You hear a lot of things nowadays about, I'm not judging. Well, that's cowardly. The Bible says the man that's spiritual judges all things. Doesn't judge people, but he judges all things. Everybody shies away so much from this idea of passing judgment on other people. Well, in one sense, that's right, that's good. We shouldn't pass judgment on people, but we should certainly judge everything that people are doing. We should judge it according to the word, not according to our preferences. But everything in life should be judged according to the word. And Paul said that that's the way that a spiritual man operates. Well, spiritual man would have to mean someone that's being led by the Holy Ghost, wouldn't it? If you're going to be led by the Holy Ghost, you're going to have to learn to judge. Pure and simple. Forget all this feel good, not wanting to make anybody feel good or feel bad stuff. You're going to have to learn to judge according to the Bible. You're going to have to learn to judge truth versus falsehood. Regardless of the consequences or people's likes or dislikes. Verse 7. He's talked about the fact that we worship only one God through Jesus. The one God who created everything. The one God that provides everything for us. Verse 8 or verse 7 rather in chapter 8. Howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge. What knowledge? That idols are nothing. People get all freaked out sometimes because loved ones have little statues of Buddha or something like that in their homes. I remember one lady in particular many years ago. She came up to me and she says, Pastor Mike, you've got to come with me to my son's house. Well, I knew right away that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> but I asked why. What do, you, what do you need me for? What's that about? My son went to Thailand or wherever they went and came back from this trip and they've got a, about a four or five inch jade statue of Buddha. And so I asked when he was fat or when he was skinny. 
I'm laughing about it. She's distraught, boy. She's upset. She said, I just know that's going to bring evil spirits into their home. I said, well, what is it you want me to do? She said, I want you to go cast the devil out of their home and make sure that it's clean. And what good would that do? If I was able to do it in the first place, which I wouldn't be because she doesn't own the house. She's not the one that has authority for anything to be done there. But if I did that, but they wanted the evil spirits to be there or wanted to live their life in such a way that opened the door to the evil spirits, they'd come right back. So what good would it do? I hope I don't cause anybody to lose their salvation over this. But Brother Haken had a little statue of Buddha. It was given to him as a gift. Somebody that was just making jokes and making light of, the, of what we know. And he got the biggest kick out of it. He put it right there on the mantle. Because idols are nothing. They mean nothing. They're nothing when it comes to power. There's no inanimate object that's ever going to exercise authority over you in any way whatsoever if you know who you are in Christ. Well, let's keep reading. Paul said, Howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge that idols are nothing. For some with conscience of the idol unto this hour eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Now stop there and think what he's saying. He's telling us right off the bat that our conscience can either be strong or weak. The voice of our spirit, which is what their conscience is, the voices of our spirit, spirits can either be weak or strong. Paul identifies the strength of his conscience by knowing that idols are nothing. He said not everybody's at that point. Now what brings us to that point? Well, the teaching of the truth and the understanding thereof, the meditating of the word of God, to where we realize who we are and who God is. So our consciences can, can obviously be educated. So he says, some for conscience sake are offended by eating meats offered unto idols because they haven't gained the strength of confidence yet, or strength of their conscience yet. That idols are nothing. Verse 8, he said, But meat commendeth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we better, neither if we eat not are we worse. He's saying God doesn't care. Doesn't matter to God one way or the other. And folks, I think when we get to heaven, we're going to find out there are a lot of things that people fought wars over here on the earth as far as Christian doctrine is concerned and so forth that God really didn't care. But we always want to stand our ground on what we think is right. So that's where these wars and conflicts come from. I want you to notice something. Paul's not telling anybody else what they have to do. He's not identifying what a good Christian would do or not do. He's saying as far as God is concerned, it doesn't make us better if we don't eat it. And it doesn't make us worse if we do eat it. Verse 9. But take heed lest by any means this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to them that are weak. Now here's the issue. Here's where our consciences come in. Paul very simply says, it's not a matter of what you're strong enough to recognize that you can do. It's whether or not what you do creates a stumbling block for other people. 
Folks, that right off the bat identifies that we shouldn't be just living our lives to suit us. But that we should ever be aware that what we do can affect other people. Positively, hopefully, but certainly negatively as well. Verse 10, for if any man see thee which has knowledge sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when you sin so against the brethren, now notice what he's saying. He's saying eating meat in a, in a, under circumstances that could cause other people to stumble. And the other people he's talking about are people that don't have as strong a conscience as you might. He's saying that's not a sin as far as God is concerned. But if you make somebody stumble, it's a sin against them. Again, the point is we should live our lives not to just suit ourselves, but what edifies other people. When you sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Notice he's saying that it's not the eating of the meat, it's the sin. But if you cause somebody else to stumble, now you've sinned against God too. Wherefore, here's what Paul concludes as far as his manner of life or the way that he's going to dictate the boundaries of his life. He says, wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. Now, folks, as I said before, by the way, you can turn with me to chapter 10 if you'd like. Paul continues this a little bit. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we'll start in verse 25. But before I get there, let me make this comment again. I've never really been tempted with eating meats offered to idols, as you have. I mean, it's just not something that's done. But you could insert drinking alcohol into this same position, these same scriptures, and come away with the same idea. Is drinking alcohol wrong for a Christian? No. Is abstaining from alcohol right for a Christian? No. How come? Because God doesn't care. He couldn't care less. But what he does care about is whether or not our lives cause other people to stumble. For that reason, I won't drink anything. Let me tell you a story. When I was... Uh, 14, maybe 15 years old. I grew up pretty much all my life in the Southern Baptist Church. All my friends were there, friends from school were there. We only had one school in our community, so everybody that you went to church with were the people you went to school with. And um, there was a, a, one of the, my friend's fathers was a deacon in the church. And as such, they, the church that uh, I was part of would use the deacons in certain ways. Serving communion, for example. They'd have them come up and lead in prayer. They took a prominent position in the church as far as the public setting was concerned. And so, as a young, young teenager, I looked at these deacons and assumed that they were the most spiritual men around, not that I would have known that term or what that term meant. But I assumed that the deacons were the best of the best people that were tagged to help serve in the church. I used to think that about politicians, too. 
I used to think politicians were elected because they had something that more than the rest of us had. Well, that certainly may be true, but it's not a positive thing that they have. But anyway, back to the deacon. I was over at my friend's house just doing whatever we were doing. And I saw his dad, the deacon in the church, come home from work, go to the refrigerator, take a beer out of the refrigerator, open it up and sit down in his recliner and start watching TV. And I can't tell you how that hurt me spiritually. When I saw it, my jaw dropped and instantly all the things that I thought about how the deacons were the best of the best people, all that flew out the window. I remember it as clearly as anything in the world. Now, it didn't hold me back. It didn't turn me away from God, but it could have. Was there anything wrong with him having a beer after work? No, not a thing. But I would have to conclude, based on what Paul says, that he used poor judgment to do it while I was around. That's the thing that I always remember when I think about these things or people bring these subjects up. And invariably, people bring them up. And unfortunately, the majority of the time is because young people want an excuse to drink. Might as well just call it what it is. And so they want somebody to tell them. I mean, how often do we hear the fact that Paul told Timothy to drink a little wine for his stomach's sake? Those are the only scriptures some people know. It's not this great love of God that caused them to research the subject and find out that Paul told Timothy to drink wine for his stomach. So if that's the only scripture that somebody knows, that might not be the way to start toward walking with God. But it's always going to be an issue, folks. So for me, the issue is I'm not going to take a chance of offending anybody. Now, there's another side of the coin, too. I've been in situations where people insisted that I drink because they were having wine with dinner or whatever. I didn't. But they were just hell-bent on making sure I had a sip of something so that they'd feel better about what they were doing. That's why I don't go to dinner with many people. Anytime somebody comes up to me and says, Pastor Mike, we've got to go to lunch. I know right away. No, no, you don't. We really don't. Did you find 1 Corinthians 10 yet? Verse 25. Paul said, whatsoever is sold in shambles, the shambles, the shambles is the word I was talking about. It means butcher's market. He's talking about meat offered unto idols again. This was apparently a big issue in the day. So he said, whatsoever is sold in the butcher's market, that eat, asking no question for conscience sake. In other words, he's saying when you go buy your meat, you don't have to ask where did it come from. If you don't know, then nobody's conscience is going to be defiled. So don't ask for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If any of them that believe not, now he's talking about as far as your own activity is concerned, Interaction with other Christians, other believers. Now he's going to talk about our interaction with the world. So he says for the, uh, verse 27, if any of them that believe not, the unsaved, bid you to a feast and you be disposed to go. If you decide to go, whatsoever is set before you eat, asking no questions for conscience sake. 
But if any man say unto you, This is offered in sacrifice unto idols, eat not for his sake that showed it, and for conscience' sake, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Notice he quotes the same scripture on two different positions. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He's saying God doesn't care. But God does care what actions we take in life that hurts others of his children. You remember Jesus told people that uh, those that offended the little children, it would be better for them for a millstone to be put around their neck and drowned in the sea. God seems, seems to be, therefore, really interested in whether or not our lives are offending other believers. If God's that interested, shouldn't we be? Let me read verse 28 again. But if any man say unto you, this is offered in sacrifice unto idols, eat not for his sake that showed it, and for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He seems to be indicating to us as well, the only people that are going to tell us about it being offered unto idols. If somebody did tell you that, then it's a clear indication that their conscience would be offended by you eating so. Verse 29, conscience I say, not thine own, but of the other. For why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? For if I by grace be a partaker, why am I evil spoken of for that which I give thanks? Whether, therefore, you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. Paul's got a lot to say about the conscience. He's got a lot to say about the voice of your spirit. Now the fact that he does have a lot to say, and there are a lot of scriptures that we won't take time to go into. But the fact that he does say so much about the conscience indicates to us and should be an indicator to us that the voices of our spirit or the voice of our spirits, one voice, the voice of our spirits should be in knowledge of the things of God and should be heeded according to that which would cause somebody else to stumble. Now, that's not the only way that the, the voice of your spirit will interact with you. I've, uh, I think I shared earlier in this series the um, story about how Beth and I wound up moving out here to start the church. It came about as a, a, an acquaintance of mine saying, trying to make a joke about uh, something that had happened uh, in a, a church that was in this area that we were scheduled to preach in. And in the interim time, I'd already been here once. But when I was scheduled to come back a few months later, or a few months after the time that I was talking to my friend, the church had blown up and people were, were scattered and it was just a mess. Don't know exactly what all was involved with it, but I don't need to know. So he asked me if I'd heard what had happened to the church that I was scheduled to preach in. I said no. And so he told me, and, it, and as I said, he related that it was in a, a terrible mess. And so as was our custom, Whenever we'd go through a place or through a situation that was really difficult, we'd look at one another and the first one that thought about it would say, I think God wants you to go there and start a church. Every time we took a trip on the, uh, the bus to California for one of Brother Hagen's crusades, we'd always come through Needles, California. 
I don't know if you know Needles, California, and if anybody's from Needles, California, I don't mean to offend, but it's not the prettiest place in the world. Let's just say it that way. And so one of us would say to the other, I think God wants you to come here and start a church, indicating how difficult it would be. Well, he made that comment to me about this church out here, and instantly I knew. Instantly I knew. I had a, a bearing witness with my spirit that this was the change that I had sensed coming for several months prior. I just knew. I can't tell you how I knew. It wasn't like voices were in my head or in my heart or in my ear. I just knew. One of the things Jesus said in John chapter 10, he said, my sheep hear and know my voice. I think a lot of people read that and interpret it as my people hear physical hearing and know recognizing my voice but I don't think that's what it means I think what it means is when that knowing drops on the inside of us that's the voice of God see God doesn't lead us by questions God leads us by inward knowings a bearing witness where our spirit knows instantly what to do or how to do it well that's what happened to me I went home and told Beth about what had happened to the church, not telling her what had witnessed to my heart. And when we got to the point where I told her what my friend had said, making the joke, she confirmed later to me that the same thing happened to her. She had an inward knowing. Another time that I remember very well is when um, I first saw this property. I knew the developer from my association with Brother Hagen at the time that I was working with him. He was uh, associated with the ministry, and so I became acquainted with him and uh, knew about him. And so we'd been out here for several years, and, um, and he called me one day out of the blue and asked me if I'd go with him to look at a piece of property. So I said, sure. Well, it was a doomed endeavor from the beginning. He forgot to bring the aerial maps that showed where the property was. He didn't bring anything with him that he would have normally had. He just put me in his four-wheel drive truck whatever it was and none of the roads were in there's no way to get here except just driving over the terrain so he's pushing down little trees with his truck <laughs> to where we got to a place it took us forever to get out here and, and when we got here since we didn't have any aerial, aerial maps to show me where we were I thought we were in Hemet <laughs> I really did it seemed like we'd climbed every rock pile and we got out here and and uh it, it, there was no grading done. There was nothing done yet. And so this property is 40 feet below where it is now. When they um, developed the area, they put engineered fill and uh, um, built it up from the street down below us to where it kind of sits, uh, sits on top and overlooks the area. So I came to this property, and I looked around, and I thought, well, he had no development things, uh, maps or anything, pictures, drawings or anything like that to show me. He just told me about some things that were going on, and I couldn't see it, just couldn't see it. So I, I thanked him for thinking about us, but I said I'd have to give away my church and start another one to come this far out. So that was it. That was the end of it. And about three years later, I get another call from the guy. By that time, all the roads were in. The grading had been done. Not many of the lots had been purchased at that point. But he, brought me, he wanted to show me a piece of property. And it turned out that when we turned into the road to come to this property, 
all the sewage and water lines and all that kind of stuff was in. When we turned onto the property, drove up on the, on the dirt, there was something that went off on the inside of me like a buzzer. It wasn't words. It wasn't anything that was, well, I don't know how to describe it any other way than what I said. It was just like there was a buzzer that went off on the inside of me. And I knew instantly, this is it. Well, we got to talking about some things. He had forgotten that three or three and a half years before we had come to the same piece of property. So I started asking him some questions and we finally figured out and I reminded him of the, of the time before. We finally figured out this was the same place. Now in the interim period of time, the Methodist church had bought this property. He wanted to give me first shot at it, and when I said I wasn't interested in it, he put it up for sale, and the Methodist jumped on it. And something happened. Now, folks, I want you to get this. Same piece of property. First time, I had nothing. Second time, I had everything. I had a knowing this was it. There's no trying to explain how I know. I just know. This is the place. And that interim period of time, God saved our property. The Methodist took it, and they wound up getting in a war between different people on the boards and the committees and however they run their church. I don't know about too much about Methodist church government. But apparently there were different committees that were having to work together and so forth. And two of these guys on the committee were so against each other that they blew up the deal. Now, if you'd asked me before, does God blow up Methodist church deals? I would not have known. <laughs> but I know he did this one. Now, what is that buzzer? What is that knowing? That's the voice of your spirit. It's not always words, but it is always knowing. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. Well, if he bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God and bears witness with our spirits who we are in Christ and what belongs to us in Christ Jesus because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, doesn't it make sense that he'll bear witness with what God has planned for our lives? Obviously so. Paul came to crossroads in his ministry where he didn't know which way to go. It says at one point he tried to go into Asia and the Spirit suffered him not. The Spirit told him don't go. The Spirit witnessed with him. may not have been words. We don't have record that it was words. But it said the Spirit suffered him not to go. What does that mean? It means he communicated with him somehow. Paul knew that he wasn't supposed to go to Asia. Two years later, Paul goes into Asia and has the greatest revival in his, that we have record of in his ministry. Asia was where Ephesus was. So when he comes to that first crossroads and God won't let him go into Asia, two years later, he leads him into Asia and it starts a three and a half year revival that changed the world. Thank God for the Holy Ghost. What may not be right for you at this moment may be right for you down the road. But if we don't learn the leading of the Holy Ghost, if we don't know what it is for the Spirit of God to bear witness with our spirits, if we don't learn to heed our conscience, then we'll never know. I'll refer you to one of the scriptures that Paul wrote to Timothy as a warning. Paul talked about people whose consciences were seared. Brother Hagin used to tell a story about an old fella. He was 89 years old. Brother Hagin was uh, 
teaching in a church, would teach regularly in a church, and it was quite a distance away from where he lived. And so he would come every weekend and, and stay with this older gentleman and his wife. And this older gentleman had a, an old-fashioned cooktop stove, you know, the, the uh, pot-bellied stove type things. And he had this old aluminum coffee pot that would just stay on the stovetop all day long. And he said he watched him pour that coffee into a big mug. He said the coffee was so hot it was, it was moving. It was simmering. He said that old fellow would just take that thing and drink it down in one gulp. Brother Hagin said the first time I saw him do that, I cried out loud. He said, ah! <laughs> and he said that this fellow didn't start off drinking hot coffee like that. But over the years... He had so conditioned the tissues or burned out the tissues in his throat, maybe. I'm not sure. To where that hot cup of coffee didn't affect him whatsoever. Now, if you or I tried to drink a hot cup of coffee like that, it'd burn us from stem to stern. But over the years, this fellow had conditioned himself, really, in my thinking, by mistreating the tissues in his mouth and throat that he was able to do that. Well, Paul talked about people whose consciences were seared. What sears our consciences? If our consciences can lead us into the victory that God has planned for us in Christ Jesus and for his purpose in our lives, then we need to know what things will hinder us from hearing the voice of our own spirits. There are a number of things that the Bible says don't do so that you don't grieve the Holy Spirit. It really comes down to this. When we ignore the voice of our spirits, when we ignore our conscience and do what we want to do anyway, no matter what our conscience is telling us what's right or wrong, then we sear our consciences. It's not that God stops talking. It's that we stop hearing. We need to learn to listen to our conscience. Even when it seems like it's not a big deal and won't make a difference. It always makes a difference because it keeps us tender toward the leading of the Holy Ghost. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that our spirits have a voice just like our bodies and just like our souls. We thank you for guiding us and directing us by your spirit in our spirits. We thank you that we are your children and therefore we have a right and even a responsibility to be led by the Holy Ghost. We thank you that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are the sons of God, bears witness with our hearts who we are in Christ and what your plan and your purpose is for our lives. We say, Father, what Jesus said about us. We hear and know his voice. And a stranger we will not follow. We know not the voice of a stranger, but we do know the voice of our Heavenly Father. Thank you, Father, for leading us into victory. Thank you for divine guidance. Thank you for divine protection. Thank you for divine healing and divine provision. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand. God's trying to communicate with our spirits all the time. It's up to us to develop a sensitivity to hear and know his voice. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Well, folks, have a great day. Come back and be with us tonight if you can for Healing School at 6. 
and if not, have a great Labor Day. You're dismissed.